Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The Hidden Message in Carols by Ian Bradley Carols are one of the best-loved features of Christmas celebrations and one of the most effective means of spreading the good news of the birth of Jesus, the Saviour of the world. In addition to their clear proclamation of the doctrine of incarnation, that God has taken on human form and come to dwell among us, some of our most popular carols may also have been written to convey further hidden messages. Take O Come All Ye Faithful, for instance. On the surface, it seems a straightforward hymn of adoration to the newborn Christ. But in fact, historians suggest that it may well have been written in its original Latin form, Adeste Fideles, as a coded message to rally Jacobites to the cause of Bonnie Prince Charlie on the eve of his rebellion against the British crown in 1745. The man generally reckoned to have been its author, John Francis Wade, was a fervent supporter of the Jacobite cause, who seems to have written it while he was a plain chant scribe at the English Catholic College in Douai, France, where a weekly mass was celebrated for the return of the Stuarts to the British throne. Half-hidden Jacobite images, including Scottish thistles and the Stuart cipher, appear in the earliest manuscripts of the carol. Its call to the faithful may have had a double meaning and been intended to alert the supporters of the king over the water to Charles James Stuart's imminent arrival in Britain from the continent. Similarly, its reference to Rex Angelorum, translated as the King of Angels, could also be taken to mean the true king of the English, in contrast to the Hanoverian incumbent, George II. In its original Latin form, the carol seems initially to have been sung only in Roman Catholic places of worship, notably in the chapel of the Portuguese embassy in London, and its tune was long known as the Portuguese hymn. Another well-known Christmas song may contain similarly coded messages. It has been suggested on the basis of letters from Jesuit priests attached to the English college in Douai, France, that the 12 Days of Christmas was written to teach the elements of the Roman Catholic faith to children during the period following the Reformation, in which it was officially prescribed and suppressed in the United Kingdom. In this reading, the twelve drummers drumming are the articles of the Apostles' Creed, the eleven pipers piping, the faithful apostles, the ten lords leaping, the ten commandments, the nine ladies dancing, the fruits of the Holy Spirit the eight maids a-milking, the Beatitudes, the seven swans a-swimming, the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, and five gold rings, the five wounds of the crucified Christ. A hidden message of a rather different kind may be lurking in another popular carol, Angels from the Realms of Glory, 
which first appeared in a radical Sheffield newspaper entitled The Iris on Christmas Eve 1816. Its author, James Montgomery, the paper's editor, was twice imprisoned for his support of the French Revolution and reform riots in Britain. The original last verse, which described justice repealing the sentences of those sentenced to imprisonment and mercy breaking their chains, was regarded by the authorities as too polemic and subversive, so did not find its way into any hymn book when the carol was taken up and sung in churches. A carol with a more overtly contemporary message is It Came Upon the Midnight Clear. Its author, Edmund Sears, who claimed descent from one of the original Pilgrim Fathers, was a Unitarian minister in Massachusetts with a deep commitment to social reform and the promotion of peace. He wrote it in 1849, following the violent revolutions in Europe and the bloody and costly war between the United States of America and Mexico in the previous year. These conflicts were undoubtedly in his mind when he wrote, O hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing, and expressed his heartfelt longing for a future age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendours fling. Sentiments which we can certainly echo this Christmas. The German carol, Stille Nacht, Silent Night, which regularly tops the list of the world's favourite Christmas song, underwent several adaptations through the 20th century, expressing the changing political mood in Germany. A socialist version, entitled The Workers' Silent Night, which circulated widely around 1900, highlighted the prevailing poverty, misery and distress, and ended with an appeal to wake up to social action rather than sleep in heavenly peace. It was considered subversive and banned by the German government before the First World War. During that war, German soldiers on the front adapted Stille Nacht to express a sense of homesickness. And in the period of rampant inflation that followed in the 1920s, Weimar Republic, a social democratic version, asked plaintively, In poverty, one starves silently. When does the saviour come? A 1940 Nazi adaptation turned the song into a celebration of the fatherland and traditional German family values. More recent parodies of the English version have tended to focus on the commercial aspects of the festive season, like the American author Chris Fabry's send-up of last-minute Christmas shopping, Silent Night, Solstice Night, All is Calm, All Half Price. The tradition of adapting traditional Christmas carols to contemporary events has a long pedigree in Britain. Hark the Herald Angels Sing has proved particularly appealing to parodists. During the abdication crisis of 1937, a version circulated which began, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Mrs Simpson's Pinched Our King. And a group of journalists, of which I was one, heralded the birth of the SDP in 1981 with Hark the Times and Guardian Roar, Glory to the Gang of Four. It is rarer to hear parodies of carols nowadays. Perhaps in our troubled times, we just want and need to focus on their message of the coming of the Christ child 
and a God's kingdom, with its promise of a more peaceful and joyful world. The Bleak Midwinter. Why Tears Could Be the Best Thing for Us This Season. By J.S. Averill. On February the 6th of this year, a heavily pregnant Afra Abu Hadia, along with her husband and their four children, was awakened in the dark early hours of the morning by a 7.8 magnitude earthquake violently shaking their apartment building in Syria. Afra and her husband gathered their children and made for the building's exit. However, just as they were nearing the door, the building collapsed upon them crushing the entire family. Afra, however, seems to have remained conscious for some hours because she did the unthinkable and delivered a baby girl while trapped beneath the rubble. Then tragically she died and her baby was left alone, buried beneath a building in the middle of winter. This year we have read too many such stories in places such as Syria, Turkey, Ukraine and, most recently, Israel and Gaza, thousands of women, men and children have suffered and died and grieved as a result of natural disasters and armed conflict. For those of us who live in a relative safety, it is difficult even to begin to comprehend such tragedies. Yet, despite our advantages... Many of us are struggling in our own ways. According to the CDC, between 25 and 30% of adults in the US are currently experiencing symptoms of anxiety and or depression. And it is no secret that mental distress levels have been steadily climbing for years in the UK as well, especially amongst youth. It can make the joyful, merry, jolly, happy, cheerful, peaceful Christmas spirit encouraged at this time of year strike a discordant note with the actual state of our minds and hearts. All is not well inside many of us, but we sense that Eeyore is an awkward personality to bring into a room, so we tend to conceal the parts of ourselves that are anxious and hurting. I confess I've become pretty adept at keeping parts of myself out of sight. I met up with a couple of friends recently. We talked about our children and their school and our plans for Christmas. I said we were going to keep Christmas simple this year. What I didn't say was that we've been keeping Christmas simple for several years now. I didn't say that a few years after my brother died... My parents and my siblings and I agreed that we would no longer see each other at Christmas because the hole my brother left is too acutely obvious when the rest of us are together. I didn't say that we don't keep our Christmas tree up for very long because the crystal star we hang near the top is in memory of our son who never saw his first Christmas. And while I love to make him a part of the holiday in this way, I also can't live with the visual reminder of that pain for very long. I didn't say that although we make an effort to give our children a happy Christmas, 
My husband and I are just trying to make it through to the other side of the holidays because we've twice in recent years painfully and unexpectedly lost our household income right before Christmas and the season now triggers within us the fear and confusion and hurt of those Christmases. I didn't say that sometimes I feel like everything beautiful and good is always sooner or later cornered, caught and hauled away by the destructive forces in the world. I just told my friends that we were going to keep it simple this year. Maybe you have your own lines that you trot out on such occasions. If you do, the season of Advent is a welcoming space for such as us. Advent is observed during the four weeks leading up to Christmas and marks the beginning of the Christian church year. Traditionally, it is a time when Christians remember how their spiritual ancestors, the ancient nation of Israel, spent roughly 600 years being conquered and enslaved successively by Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece and then Rome. The God of Israel had, however, promised that he would one day send them a deliverer, a messiah, to rescue them from their bondage. And so the Israelite people, in their suffering, waited and looked and prayed for the coming of their deliverer. Christians believe that Jesus, whose birth is celebrated at Christmas, was that messiah, and that, spoiler warning, he ended up delivering not only Israel, but the whole world in a very different way than anyone was expecting. But that's the story of Easter and we're not there yet. During Advent, Christians remember the centuries of Israel's powerless waiting to be rescued and how, true to his word, God sent them a Messiah. However, Advent is not just for looking back. It is also a space for acknowledging all the myriad ways in which darkness still rules over us today. How we still suffer and hurt and die. How we inflict these things on each other. How it seems like no matter how hard we try to make the world better, it's still always in a tragic mess. And then... While we're acknowledging all of that and feeling its great weight, Advent asks us to do something that feels preposterous at times. To believe the promise Jesus made that he will one day banish darkness from the earth and make it completely and irreversibly whole and new. In short, we're asked to continue to wait, hopefully, for light to break while we live in the darkness. Choosing this hope sometimes feels naive and even dangerous. I want to have hope, to hold it like a banner against the forces of destruction and pain whirling around in the air. But in the face of the anguish of Israel and Gaza and the wounds I've experienced in my own life, do I dare live as if everything will come right in the end? I would like to. But when hope ends in disappointment, it wounds deeply. I'm not always sure I can afford to risk hope. Advent urges me never to stop calling for help. But if calling for help isn't exactly the same thing as summoning hope, it's perilously close. 
Is it possible to call for help if I don't believe, if I'm afraid to let myself believe any help will arrive? Well, apparently it is. I learned this from Afra's tiny daughter buried in rubble. After the earthquake, relatives and friends rushed to the ruins of the collapsed apartment building in order to try and rescue those who had been inside. As they dug through the debris, one of them reported hearing a voice from beneath the rubble. The rescuers followed the sound and eventually uncovered the baby, still attached to her mother by the umbilical cord. She was pulled from the wreckage of her house and family and sped to hospital where she miraculously made a recovery and was adopted by her aunt and uncle who gave her her mother's name. She was rescued because someone heard her voice. The journalist does not specify what kind of noise she was making, but given that she was injured, suffering from hypothermia and barely breathing, it seems it must have been pretty weak crying or whimpering. And considering that she was surrounded by her dead mother, father and four siblings, and that the entirety of her short life outside her mother's body had consisted of the noise, terror, chaos and pain of the building falling upon her, it seems impossible that she was hopefully and consciously calling for help. How could she imagine what help might be? Her mother had not even had the chance to hold her in her arms. What could she know of a tender face, gentle hands, warm blankets, nourishment in her belly, soft fabric against her skin, the healing of wounds? She was not waiting or hoping for any of these. She did not even know that they existed. She was simply weeping for the terror and pain and loneliness of her little life. But the weeping was enough to save her. As I consider tears, it seems to me that they can, in themselves, be reason for hope. The person who weeps has accepted neither that things are the way they should be, as do those who cooperate with or advance the destructive forces in the world, nor that things are the way they must be, as do those who, however understandably, give up and surrender themselves to being destroyed. If you still weep and mourn for what is wrong in the world, however powerless and wounded you may feel, you are not yet overcome. In fact, unless we grasp how grievous our wounds are, how can we begin to seek out the right physician? How will we choose to make the changes within our power to make? A world that is lamenting its own brokenness, as Advent encourages it to do, seems to me to be a world for which there is yet hope. I have never experienced the trauma of a building collapsing upon me, but I've spent plenty of time trapped beneath the twin wreckages of a life I once had and the one I was hoping to build. Maybe you're buried in rubble too. Maybe you've survived an earthquake and its aftershocks, but you're not sure you're glad you have because you're bleeding and crushed and in the dark and you can't imagine how you will rebuild and survive in such a world, even if you do eventually emerge. 
Maybe you're not even sure you want to be rescued because it's all, all broken now. Your home, your family, your bones. This Advent, I am trying to gather the strength to call for help for myself and for the world, although my heart and my faith are bruised. Maybe you will call too. But if we are too afraid and confused and wounded to do even that, then let us weep, my friend, together in this darkness. For although this is a world in which much breaks and dies, it is also one in which rescue has been known to arrive, unlooked and unhoped for. And if the memory and the promise of Advent hold any truth, sometimes the hand outstretched unexpectedly to deliver turns out to be, beyond all imagining, the hand of God. The Earth-Shaking Consequences of Christmas by Barnabas Asprey The radical uniqueness of the Christmas story can easily be lost in a culture over-familiar with carols, nativity scenes and Christmas cards. The birth of Jesus is not, for Christians, merely the birth of the founder of their religion, comparable to Muhammad, the Buddha, Guru Nanak or Moses. The heart of the Christian claim is that The Incarnation, the almighty creator of all things, has irrevocably identified himself with the human race, standing in solidarity with every person who ever existed and ever will exist. Imagine Tolkien being born as a hobbit in the Shire, or J.K. Rowling going to school at Hogwarts. The mind-bending notion of the author entering his or her creation is far closer to the Christian idea of Jesus than any comparison between him and other great figures of history. For Christians, he was not just a moral teacher, not just an inspiring example, not even an object of adoration and love without further qualification. He was and is all of these things, of course. But all those things are put in the shade by something else something totally unique and unrepeatable. Emmanuel, God among us. The implications of this are staggering. Dorothy Sayers puts it this way, quote, slightly adapted. For whatever reason God chose to make human beings as we are, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. The Christian God is a God who plays fair, who keeps the rules he commands us to keep, who suffered the same pain, anxiety and daily struggle that we all suffer in the world he created. 
How is this possible? Only if we hold together two things that look like a contradiction at first sight, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human at the same time, without confusion or separation. This is how Christian dogma has been enshrined in our creeds. The early centuries of Christianity were a delicate balancing act. Theory after theory was tried and abandoned because it failed to hold the necessary tension between fully God and fully man. The long councils, with hundreds of bishops arguing over the precise wording of the creed, may seem very remote to our daily concerns. But they were trying to protect something vital to the life of the church. One word wrong could have upset the whole balance and Christianity would have become simply another mystic apparition or set of moral guidelines along hundreds of others in the ancient world. If we let go of the fully God part, then we are left with a religious teacher who may inspire devotion, offer moral guidance or even speak with the voice of God. We do not have the creator himself entering his creation to experience it as we do. If we let go of the fully human part, then we are left with a supernatural appearance of the one who made us. He may command us to live a certain way and punish us when we fail. He might leave detailed instructions about the right way to worship him, but he did not share our condition. He did not get sunburned, jostled in the street, woken up, pinched, teased at school or sold a dud. The magic is in that combination of the two, almost impossible to grasp, that puts the source of all power, truth and beauty in a collision course with the deepest fears, sufferings, joys, hopes and longings of every member of the human race. The one who made us is not unaware of what it is like to live in this world. Whatever his mysterious purposes may be for his creation, they involve humanity in a prominent position. And whatever God destines for our race is a destiny he shares. As G.K. Chesterton writes of the Incarnation, Since that day, It has never been quite enough to say that God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. Since the rumour that God had left his heavens to set it right. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.